0: Hello and welcome to episode 236 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with...
1: Jason How's it going, Ian?
0: It's going all right, Jason. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, that's all I got. It's just another week with a lot of news.
0: <laughs> just another week with a lot of news. Shall we dive right in? We should. Let's dispense with the small talk and get straight to it. Excellent. Excellent. So, this week we've got a good show. We've got plenty of news. Some very unusual things have happened and some interesting things. And we've also got Chris Sloan, who is the founder and curator of the Archive, an online aviation museum. We're talking with him later in the show. So, we've got some good stuff in this particular episode. But we begin in Scandinavia where Air France KLM and Castle Lake, the investment group, have agreed to take a stake in SAS. And what this means for investors is that current investors in SAS seem like they're going to be wiped out. And if you're flying SAS, well, I hope you are okay with leaving Star Alliance for Sky Team.
1: Yeah, this came – At a left field. I mean, yesterday, SAS on its regular facing Twitter account just said, like, here's a link to a press conference. They didn't say what the press conference was. There was no lead up into it. It was just, hey, here's a press conference. And I did not I turned it on actually before it started and turned it off because I got bored waiting for them to start. And I did (laughs) not think it would be Air France KLM is buying nineteen point nine percent of the equity and five percent of the convertible debt of SAS and making it eventually possibly one day into a full subsidiary of the Air France KLM group. And as Ian just said, it will almost immediately begin the process of withdrawing itself from the Star Alliance, of which SAS was a founding member. So this is the first time an airline alliance founding member airline has actually withdrawn from that alliance which I thought was interesting and they're going to begin the process of joining SkyTeam of course Air France KLM members of SkyTeam and winding up new partnerships with all of those airlines so this really really came seemingly I don't know where but kind of makes sense it kind of makes sense i mean
0: SAS is a very interesting airline because it's an airline split among three countries that have had historically a vested interest in the airline's success. But as a commercial entity, the airline has had a lot of trouble, especially throughout the pandemic and recently. So they began bankruptcy proceedings last year and have started to come out of that with restructuring and things of that nature. And they had been looking for new equity partners. So that part's not surprising, nor is, I guess, the eventual. Tie up with another airline. Lufthansa had been the kind of often floated name for that tie up.
1: As is commonplace. In As United is States. commonplace
0: throughout Europe. So, I mean, really, this is just further consolidation. I mean, you're going to end up with IAG, Air France KLM, and the Lufthansa Group will own pretty much all the airlines. Every non-Ryanair airline in Europe, seemingly. Yeah, I mean, unless you're a low cost carrier in
1: Europe, you will be owned by or maybe even if you are a low cost carrier in certain it's not safe. Certain this one really was surprising though, since Air France KLM is now gonna have like a, a fortress hub in northern Europe at this point where they've got obviously Paris on lockdown with Air France, Amsterdam on lockdown with KLM, well, whatever's left of Amsterdam. We'll talk about that later. And then you have the SAS hubs, presumably in Copenhagen, Oslo, and Stockholm to varying degrees each. So the Air France KLM group is really going to be heavily concentrated in Northern Europe, which is why it would have made a little more sense for maybe IAG or Lufthansa group to want to snatch up SAS since would have given them a little more range in that region since... France-KLM is already so heavily concentrated up there, it would have made a little more sense for Lufthansa Group or even IAG. But I guess if you're looking to go to Northern Europe, somewhere that isn't in the UK, you better be a SkyTeam Elite.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And of course, my SkyTeam status just ran out. But I know, I know. It's worthless anyway. Yeah. Well, there's that. So Yeah, nothing has changed hands yet. This is all still subject to approvals and regulatory actions and things of that. But the investments come as they will take a stake and then that stake could eventually turn into over – I believe it's a two-year period – could eventually Provide a pathway for Air France KLM to becoming a controlling SAS shareholder. So, as they begin their equity stake, they won't have control of the airline. The airline will remain separate nominally, but it will become a member of SkyTeam. And then, over a few years, Air France KLM will have the opportunity to become a controlling shareholder.
1: Yeah, so Air France KLM won't control the airline, at least for two years or more, probably. And SAS will remain independent with its own fleet, its own network, its own crew, yet to be seen about back office headquarters and things like that. But already, of course, we're seeing from day zero, the influence of Air France KLM, where SAS is leaving its alliance, which is no laughing matter. That's a dramatic Change that, especially for a founding member like that. So, wouldn't be surprised if Air France KLM has some undue influence on SAS, but as an entity as a whole, SAS will remain as is for the time being, though the clock is really probably ticking on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
1: we would be remiss
0: if we didn't mention what's happening at SAS in the next month or so. Jason, I refer to, of course, the final 737 flight by SAS.
1: Yeah, SAS really drew down and quickly drew down its 737 fleet throughout COVID. It had a good number of 737s in its fleet, from ranging from the unpopular 600 to the 700 to the 800. I don't believe it had 900s, but it was a significant chunk of SAS's short-haul fleet. But the final flight for SAS will occur on November 19th. Dag Viking will – operate that i believe that is a 700 and i think it's from oslo to it's from stockholm Stockholm to oslo stockholm to oslo there it is so that's a fitting flight for them but yeah really quick interesting transition for sas out of the 737 to the a320 neo basically just the a320 neo aircraft they i don't believe they have any 319s any 320s everything they've taken recently has been the 320 neo hmm So we'll be on that flight, not Jason and I. Oh, you got me excited there for a minute. This <laughs> Sorry. Was, this was news to me.
0: No, no, no. So Gabriel will be on that flight. So we'll have video from the final SAS 737 flight from Stockholm to Oslo. So check back in November for that. But if you want to be on the flight and, and you're available, you should definitely book your tickets soon. I think they are going
1: quite fast. Yes. I wouldn't be shocked if they're long gone by the time you hear this.
0: Well, there you go. So get on that or just look for the video because we'll we'll be on board.
1: So that's
0: planes leaving. Let's talk about planes coming in. United ordered a lot of planes this week. A lot, a lot of planes. Jason,
1: how many planes did they order? They ordered, well, they converted 50 options for the 787 to firm orders. So that would be 50 787-9 And they also topped off with options for 50 more 787s, which is that they really have quite an addiction to the 787s since they have a lot of aircraft in their fleet that need to be replaced over the years. But it doesn't stop there. United will also be taking 60 more A321neo aircraft and new purchase rights for 40 more. These orders all come through for the 787-9 from 2028 through 2031, and the 321 NEOs between 2028 and 2030. So this really rounds out United's order book through the end of the decade. That, to me, is the interesting part. And I think
0: Andrew Nussel, the United's chief commercial officer, also said this yesterday, and I don't know if he said it in so many words, but he basically said, we're anticipating that we won't get planes on time. So we're ordering a lot of them. He
1: didn't imply it. He outright said, it's really disappointing and we can't get the planes when we wanted them. So we're just going to order a whole bunch and
0: play it as it's.
1: And go from there.
0: That's interesting to me is that United's not only anticipating future growth. I mean, with these orders, they obviously are. But they're also anticipating future or continued strain on the supply chain in getting those aircraft in a timely fashion. So why not just order a lot of them and get options for a lot more and hope that we can get those planes about when we say we want them.
1: Yeah, and you know what else United says is probably not going to get better anytime soon Ian. And I think we all kind of know this is airspace congestion and, and airport congestion in the US they don't expect to get better anytime soon. So United is really looking to upgauge its fleet and the operations at some of its key hubs, especially here you know, at Newark, a, a model of operational excellence. They're looking to upgauge a lot of their fleet. So I'm a little surprised that they're going all in, all 50 of these options converted to purchases will be for the 787-9 rather than the 787-10 at all. I figured they'd sprinkle some more of those in since they were really insistent that they need to upgauge existing flights. They ha- need to have fewer flights with a higher capacity, but then they order the middle-sized aircraft. Why not the 10? Isn't the upgauging really about the domestic operation? Because
0: they said they're going from, I think it's 104 seats in the average departure up to 145 seats in the average departure. So I, I think the upgauging really is less about the international Departures, although United does do a fair amount of domestic flying with wide bodies. But to me, the upgauging was really about slipping in the A321 NEO as a replacement for smaller
1: and well older 737s. That was my read on the situation. I mean, I would think it's gonna be both, because the situation at some of its hubs like Newark is not getting better anytime soon. And and maybe it will come down to having to operate four flights. To Heathrow every day instead of five, and maybe balancing that out by having five or four seven eight seven dash tens instead of nines might be beneficial i don 't know it just it just seems a little odd to go all in on the dash nine when they do have tens in the fleet, so maybe they 're not as impressed with the ten as we might think yeah i don 't know that 's an interesting question one thing we do know is that they don 't even want to talk about the very long standing A350 order. (laughs) It was brought up on the call and they're like, yeah, we're not going to comment on that. It's a good aircraft, but come back in 2030 when we're ready to talk about that. (laughs) Ah, Poor A350 order. It's still there. It's still on the books. There's got to be money just sitting there. I mean, maybe United's plan is just to keep the money for those aircraft in a high yield interest account and just cancel the order and call it a day in 2030. I don't know. But don't expect me flying an A350 with United anytime before at least, I don't know, 2032 at this rate. Hey,
0: the longer they push this off, the more valuable my United A350 keychain becomes. That's right. That's right. Wow, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. That was – was that, 2015? It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Oh, man. All right. So United's taking more planes. They're taking a lot of them and they're going to take them through the end of the decade. China Eastern also ordered a bunch of planes. They're ordering 100 C919s. Ooh. And That's interesting because they went from a handful to, we'll take 100.
1: Yeah. Not atypical to have this kind of token order, but when they, the Comex C919 first was out for order, I guess, the major Chinese airlines, I don't know if they decided to order or were told to place an order, and they placed a token order for the C-919, so Air China ordered five, China Southern ordered five, China Eastern ordered, I think, five. China Eastern is so far the only airline to actually take delivery of the C-919, with just two so far, but apparently China Eastern likes what they like or they've, I don't know, maybe been told to order 100, but they, the aircraft has worked out well enough so far that they have ordered a firm order of 100 C919, and they had some interesting stats out for the first two aircraft that they've taken delivery now, which have been in service for a couple of months. They say as of September 26th, two C919 aircraft have flown 867.19 hours of commercial operations and 296 commercial flights with an average passenger seat rate of more than 73% and more than 35,000 passengers. So that's a, a lot for two planes. And, and looking up the data on B919A and B919C, they, they seem to be operating quite reliably. Not that many flights today. They're not pushing it all that hard. But it's just interesting to get a look at some of the statistics for an aircraft that we don't really see all that
0: much into. Yeah. If they're ordering 100... Whether or not they wanted, to, I mean, one assumes that you don't order 100 aircraft unless you really want to. Or unless someone tells you really, really hard. Yeah, you really want really to. But I mean, it, it'll be good to see. And honestly, I would love
1: to fly it. I would too. Field trip to, to Shanghai, please. But these aircraft are really weighted towards the end of the delivery range. So it's not like they're taking these all that quickly these new orders of the C-919 range from 2024 to 2031. And they say five are planned to come in 2024, 10 from 25 to 27, 15 per year from 2028 to 2030, and then a whole batch of 20 in 2031. So it's really an increasing number of aircraft towards the end of the decade. But yeah, I guess the China Eastern group – because it's, I don't know if these will all end up at China Eastern. There's a, there's a chance they could end up at some of the subsidiary groups, I think. They did not say that, but I wouldn't be surprised, because they like what they see, and I'd very much like to fly this aircraft one day.
0: Yeah, There's another aircraft that I would like to fly, Jason, and that, it's the upcoming Japan Airlines A350-1000.
1: But not as upcoming as we thought, thanks to like, the yeah. delays. It was supposed to go into service here to New York JFK from Probably Haneda in November, but that seems to be pushed back maybe to December because I'm just waving my hands around, pointing at everything. But Jal has a reputation to live up to. It is widely regarded as one of the most exclusive best first-class products on the now admittedly aging 777-300ER, which I flew earlier this year on a really good redemption rate from American. But it makes that product look like a basic economy compared to what they're about to roll out on the 350-1000.
0: So it's a four-class configuration with a first-class suite that seats up to three people. Sure. Why not? This is a really interesting thing to me because they've got this seat that's two seats and then across where the footrest is, they've got the obligatory seatbelt so that you can dine with your companion. So, let me ask you this. Has anyone ever actually done that? Yes,
1: I did it when I flew okay. on jal in first class. I did it. We dined as a couple in the one first class suite. It was not particularly comfortable because even in this new first class suite, your backrest is half of the IFE screen. so <laughs> It's not particularly comfortable. But admittedly, it's a fantastic way to dine if you find yourself in first class in a seat that has this. All right. You're not spending the whole flight there. It's an option. Anyone I've ever asked, they're like, no, I've never done that. That
0: seems silly. They insisted that we do
1: Ah, uh, well, there you go.
0: So the first class suite is huge. And features basically three seating arrangements. You can, and then make the full thing a bed. And we'll put pictures in the show notes because I'm not describing this thing the way it should be properly described. But the suite has a seat that turns into a bed. And then there's a seat that you can either leave as a seat and have a sitting area next to the bed, or you can recline that seat fully. And then that also becomes part of your bed. So you have a double wide bed but only like that three quarters yeah. of the way. So I guess if you, you can end up sleeping diagonally.
1: I don't know how it works. Can you book two passengers into one first class suite or are you moving I someone know. else from like economy into that seat? I don't really know. I don't think they really explain the mechanics of how that's supposed to work, but I don't think it's the first time we've seen this. I believe Eddie had on its A380 – Business studio thing with I don't know they had like three different types of business class, I think they've had that in the past as well. So it's not not unique, but it's certainly new to JAL. And then the business
0: cabin is nice. It's a business cabin. There are now doors on these suites. I don't think there's anything you know particularly game changing. Although I should mention the headphoneless.
1: Yes, I was waiting for you to get audio. So Jason, you know much more about that than I do. So I'll I'll leave that one to you to explain. Both first and business class, which is a little surprising that business class would have this since it's a bit denser, has the option to have the in-flight entertainment audio played through speakers built into the headrest. I think it's called euphony or I'm I'm not sure. I think it's a saffron thing. But I have demoed this in, in Hamburg at the aircraft interior expo. And I can assure you, at least from the demo I participated in, it will not be a cabin full of random noise like if you're on the New York City subway and someone comes on with a Bluetooth speaker because it's showtime. You are almost certainly not going to hear this outside of your business and or first class suite. But I believe this is the first committed airline to roll this out. It's the first deployment of it in the real world. So it is going to be super interesting to see how this performs in the real world, I love this as a concept because there are plenty of times I would like to lie down but also watch a movie, but it's really hard to to lie down with noise cancelling headphones on because they're they're big bulky and annoying, and also, even if you're not watching content, just being able to play like white noise or something over that, I know personally it would definitely help me sleep, even if I'm not watching a movie or anything like that, so I'm really excited to watch other people fly this. I won't be jealous at all. <laughs> I should have waited a year. Ah, uh, you should have.
0: Or you can go again next year. Yeah, sure. Can I borrow some points? <laughs> then mine are all gone. The premium economy seats look extremely nice. I think they're like the roomiest in the world. On any yeah, I'm very interested in these premium economy seats. So they've got their shell seats. So the seat reclines within its own shell, which is not new, but it seems like it has a lot of room. But also the interesting thing to me is that it has a leg rest that comes all the way up to be flush with the seat in every seat. So it's not like the, the leg rest where – in sometimes in premium economy where you get the leg rest in the bulkhead seat – And then there's a little foot kind of thing in the rest of the premium economy seats behind them. This has a full leg rest that comes up to meet the seat pan in each
1: seat. So, I think that's a really neat idea. Yeah, it's also, I believe, the first electronically controlled premium economy seat, because usually they just press a button or pull a lever and recline or whatever. And I think this one is the first fully mechanical or fully electronically controlled seat, which is definitely interesting. And I don't know if it actually is the widest. I, I believe there are other JAL premium economy seats that are a bit wider than that or have a bit better pitch. But it is... Also has economy, which is nice.
0: Yeah, so the economy is still nine abreast, and the pitch is eighty centimeters or
1: thirty-three inches. It's so, very, very good. So if you can at all. find a JAL A three fifty one thousand at an airport near you, I would highly recommend booking it. There you go. So as Jason mentioned, those are supposed to roll out in
0: November, but in fact, will probably enter service near the end of the year is what y'all said now. I would not be surprised if we saw them a little bit later than that. In other news, Alaska retired its last Airbus aircraft this week. so They
1: are now officially, for the mainline at least, an all-Boeing airline. Once again, that basically eradicates any hint that Virgin America ever existed really virgin actually happened to be the the launch operator globally of the a321neo which was kind of surprising that it would end up at alaska who wanted nothing to do with the airbus fleet but they have finally succeeded in their quest to become an all-boeing operator with a, a single common fleet so good for alaska that has positives that it's good in many ways not great from a passenger point of view because i really enjoyed flying on those 321 NEOs on Alaska since they were a bit more roomy, but just to make sure passengers weren't confused at all that Virgin America was ever a thing at any point. (laughs) Basically, at the same time on Monday of this week, Alaska also sent the last remaining 737 in the More to Love livery out to the desert to be repainted because we just can't have people remembering that Virgin America was ever a thing. They did not waste any time no. sending that aircraft to pay. No. Love is canceled at Alaska. Love There's no canceled. more to love. 737s only. Please disregard any history of the Airbus at Alaska Airlines. That was a mere blip in time that is not to be remembered. It's the part of history we don't want to think about. Yes. As a passenger, I would you know prefer to go swing the other way around, but it makes a lot of sense for Alaska to go back to being a 737 only operator as long as you don't think about all the E-175s that operate on its behalf. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll get
0: email for that one. Podcast at fr24.com. Well, they
1: don't have the Dash 8s anymore, so
0: two steps closer this year. Fair enough. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll chat with Chris Sloan from thearchive.net. We'll be right back. (music) Welcome back. We are joined now by Chris Sloan, who is an aviation journalist and the founder and curator of the Archive.net. Chris has just released the Archive 2.0, which is a wonderful online museum of everything aviation. We're talking everything from flight routes and behind-the-scenes tours, historical aircraft interior, memorabilia, menus, timetables—you name it, it is here. And Chris has joined us to tell us today about, you know, kind of about the launch of Archive 2.0 and to take us into the depths of his collection. So, so Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you, and thank you for pronouncing it correctly because Jason always was like archive because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> you mean like the onion? You mean like like something though? Differs? So I'm like, no, it's archive. Yes, yes.
0: I got the play on words. So Jason, unfortunately, isn't joining us today. So we can bash him all we want and he'll never hear it because he doesn't actually listen to the podcast. So it, it works out perfectly. But looking through here, it's basically a history of commercial aviation from beginning when? When does the collection kind of get
2: started? I mean, the collection, I think the oldest pieces, artifacts in the collection are in the late 20s. And you're right. I mean, it really begins at the beginning, the dawn of commercial aviation. I think maybe the original, very, very first Pan Am timetable between Key West and Havana is featured in there. So it goes all the way from the beginning and really to the present. But interestingly enough, so many of the documents in the, you know, remember in the old days, you know, the you could get things made of this crazy substance called paper. So the idea is, you know, like, timetables and brochures and all that. And a lot of the physical items, I mean, a lot of that stuff doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, I was really, you know, happy to create what I call, I mean, affectionately, my wife calls this airline hoarders anonymous, you know, so yes, it is pretty vast. So what got you started down this
0: road? Because I mean, this has been the new website, the newly released website is basically version 2.0, but you've been doing this for a few decades now?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I started collecting when I was five years old. And what that meant was taking the bus downtown to the airport and scouring ticket counters or going to city ticket offices uh, on trips and vacations and bothering those poor people or calling 800 numbers or having the cojones to call airlines collect. And, you know, can you send me a timetable or a brochure? And I actually became pen pals and wrote the CEO of Delta. And so I kind of collected this stuff for years and years and years. I grew up in a town that is really a, you know, it's the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then Miami and Tulsa was unique because that's where, you know, the American Airlines was the largest private employer. I mean, I had my seven year old birthday at at the maintenance hangar and that was so many people worked for American and Boeing and Rockwell and, you know, Spirit Aerosystems came out of Tulsa. So you were kind of surrounded by it and, you know, just always had a passion for the history and the wonder and, Interestingly enough, the American Airlines Museum, the C.R. Smith, one of the very best ones, actually began in Tulsa, like, you know, in the basement of the airport. And it was started by uh, locals. You know, Tulsa is the world's largest. That's American's maintenance base, main one. That's the largest in the world. So, you know, I collected and collected for years and years and years. And about 20 years ago, literally in 2003, you know, I had this like storage warehouses of this stuff are, you know, very perfectly, God, I went through, I don't know, a million Ziploc bags and, you know, models everywhere. And I was like, you know, what good is this stuff if it's just here for me to see? And, you know, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if, you know, I started a museum. I'm much too lazy for that. You know, but like, like flat flight path or CR Smith or futures or flight or the museum of flight, wouldn't it be great to have a brick and mortar? And so I was like, you know, it's again, doing this people, this, it doesn't nobody any good unless it's shared. And my wife was hoping she was like, maybe does this mean like a bridge maybe to kind of getting rid of it and putting it somewhere else. (laughs) But it does look like, you know, there is, yeah, the man cave doth spill it over. And so, you know, and I've always carried a camera and photographed everything as well. And so I really just wanted to share it. And I launched it 20 years ago. And actually, this is like the fourth iteration, fourth version of the site. Because, you know, back then we were doing it in like I was coding it in like really bad Dreamweaver with horrible Photoshop. So it's come a long, long way. And I've continued to collect and then had a lot of people contribute, you know, and so it's, yeah, I just like to think it's, and what's unique is, I think is a little different is almost easier to say what it isn't. Because what it isn't, is sure, they're airplane photos, right? But I'm not, quote, a plane spotter site. There is a lot of aircraft, but it may be in boneyards or maybe the cabins, or I spend a lot of time on the terminals or in hangars or in the network operations control. But as an airline photographer, I mean, you know, Anet or plane spotters, or, you know, I mean, I suck compared to them. My photo skills are maybe slightly better than Brett Snyder's, because I think he admits he kind of sucks at it. <laughs> When it comes to shooting airplanes, what I tried to do with this museum is kind of be where others aren't, and you'll see pictures of external airports. But you know, I know Jason really. You know, when he you know he misses LaGuardia's leaking roofs and overpriced pretzel stands. So isn't it cool that you can go back and see what LaGuardia and these terminals look like in the mid '90s? Or isn't it interesting to see what is an American Airlines or Song Airlines or what? Cabin looked like from the '90s and 2000s, or like British Airways. What was the world's first sleeper sleeper seat? True life flat. What does that look like? And besides all the timetables and maps, so that was kind of that was kind of the inspiration. Is can I share what most people don't get to see or what doesn't exist elsewhere? Because there's frankly so many great sites and museums. So it was like, what am I going to bring the party? Well, let's try to bring some something different and you know super comprehensive.
0: So how big is the collection at this point? I mean, it's electronic. So I guess what storage size are we talking about?
2: It's about 65,000 files, you know, storage size. I mean, we believe it or not, it was like 14 gig that we've scanned. And that scanning's happened over 20 years. I mean, in the beginning, I did a lot of it. I mean, I still do a lot of it. and But, you know, I've had groups, you know, do that. But then there's a tremendous amount of models that I have, including some really unique unusual, massive models and airplane seats. And, you know, my desk is the wing of the first L-1011. So there's a lot of that physical stuff. Yeah, it's two storage uh, units and a crazy man cave. And, you know, it it could probably fill a small airport, actually. (laughs) Anybody have an airport terminal they can loan me? Because, you know, I
0: can't. I was going to ask, have you ever given thought to partnering with an airport and, and putting some of this stuff
2: on display? Well, it actually, some of it is. And you're right. That's what I really want to do. Ultimately, I want to find a place where it'll be seen physically by people. So that's, I've been looking at, you know, as you get older, you start to like, you know, or maybe that's my wife again saying, you know, it's like, sometimes I'm afraid to go on vacation. I might come home and I might have the house cleaned out. But if you go into the Miami airport, for instance, and on uh, top of concourse, E-Americans concourse there, You'll see my six foot long TWA 747 cutaway because it literally was just too big for the house or um, terminal TWA hotel at JFK a number of years ago did with the museum of modern art opened it up after uh, for really only one day. Cause a lot of stuff went wrong. They had a huge collection of airline and memorabilia and art along with the aesthetic. So I loaned parts, bits and pieces of the collection out physically and hope to do that a lot more and ultimately probably find a long-term home for a lot of this stuff because I've never been ever, 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 I've always been a buyer and collector. I've never been a seller and I don't really want to get into that business. So there's a few museums that have uh, contacted me and I've been talking to about kind of where it eventually lies or start delving it out in pieces while you want something. <laughs> oh, I know you're just moving, into a, you're just moving into a new house. Certainly you got yeah, plenty no. of room. No, 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 no. You wouldn't like a whole stack of uh, airline safety cards from like Aerolíngas from the 70s? Come on.
0: <laughs> I think we could find somebody to take those safety cards. Let's dive into the collection. We've talked about the pictures. We've talked about, you know, the seats and the menus and things like that. What are some of the more, shall we say, unique items in your collection?
2: Well, I think the most interesting, some of the weirdest stuff and some of the stuff I love most is a friend of mine. Do you remember Laker Airlines, Laker Airways? Yeah, Freddie Laker. Freddie Laker. So Freddie Laker Jr. is a friend of mine and he was moving, leaving Miami where he was mostly raised between here and the Bahamas. And he was leaving, we actually worked in the same building and he was moving up to a new home, leaving Florida because that's the cool thing to do right now. And his wife gave him similar orders. So he said, wait, why don't you come over and I've got some of dad's stuff for you. And it's like, oh, cool. Yeah, of course. You know, I'm like kind of a, I don't know, like a trash pickup for old airline memorabilia people somehow know to call me. <laughs> and one of the coolest thing, he gave me a lot of really rare stuff. I think the coolest thing, the two coolest things is Sir Freddie Laker was knighted by the Queen of Eng- England in like 1979 or something for creating Laker Airways, which, you know, we could do a whole story and what was unique and innovative. And so he gives me the hat that he was wearing, signed by the Queen, with all the photos of him being knighted in the front page story and the, the, all the London newspapers with the papers. I've got it sitting right here sometimes, you know, for Halloween, I put on the top hat. And so, you know, I thought it's like, well, that's kind of crazy. And then the other thing, you know, every year he'd buy a new Rolls Royce. And there was always a photo of Sir Freddie, who really was like the inspiration for Richard Branson and a true legend, and not only just from airlines but a legend in terms of you know being somebody who worked their way up through the class system and you know was an entrepreneur in a country that wasn't built that way, and so he always would buy a new Rolls Royce every year, so but always kept the same license plate f a l one the exact same physical piece on the car, and he gave me the the license plate and then he's and then he gave me a model d c ten which is a kid's toy that had never been opened, that his dad said, I want to get you to give this to your son. And he's like, well, I never had any kids, so you've got kids. Why don't you take it? So there's stuff like that, or there's the very first, the DC-10. They only made these three gigantic cutaway models, about six feet long. One was passenger, one all cargo, one combi. Bought this about 20 years ago, and it's a cutaway that McDonnell Douglas used to haul around the world to air shows before the DC-10 was built. Much to my wife's chagrin, that lives in the living room. <laughs> the Concord, we have a Concord cutaway, the actual model that was in the factory lobby at Filton where they built it. And it's a cutaway in the Atlantic models and who's like, you know, been amazing to me. They've done restoration on those kind of things. So we got these really interesting models. I have a pair of sitting in a pair of first class, uh, well, they feel like first class, but they're actually coach seats from PSA Airlines from the seventies. They look like, I mean, super fla- flower child. Like if I got an airplane with orange sheets and flowers, I, it probably made people ill. But so there's a lot of that. I mean, the L-1011 model handed out at the inaugural, uh, when at the rollout. So there's a lot of those kind of some interesting physical pieces that I think are really unique. And that's the kind of stuff I like physically displaying. I think probably the best stuff in the collection from a personal standpoint is we named our son after a Braniff Airplane. So we have... You know, a complete collection of Calder, Alexander Calder memorabilia and very special models of those airplanes and hand-signed lithographs. And I realize I'm opening myself up to being robbed uh, now that I think about it. But uh, we keep, yeah, we keep this stuff under because some of it's pretty priceless and valuable. So we keep that a lot of stuff off-premises you know, in fairly high security because some of this stuff, particularly some of these and some of these old brochures and silverware and plates, some of this stuff has, does have true historic value. And if you'd like a a can of unopened Braniff coffee grounds from a 1976, I'd be more than happy to send that to you. That's sitting right here. Oh boy. So, And then people send us really interesting models and books and things that are from crazy old company property of like, you know, literally schematics of, of aircraft. And so it's a really interesting collection. And as you can tell, I kind of babble on about it because its I just love nothing more than to share it with people. So Chris, one of the things about the archive is that it's not just
0: your stuff, though I'm still trying to wrap my head about how much stuff you have, but it's not just your stuff. It comes from other people as well. People have contributed to the archive over the years. So how does that work? Who has contributed and how can anyone contribute?
2: I certainly can't have everything nor would I want to. And I literally, you know, there's immense amounts of material out there that I think so much people have lying around in their house, former executives, former pilots, you name it, flight attendants or fans. And some of the best stuff we've had has come from contributors. And so now we've really added a function where you can join, upload, galleries of photos and pictures, or even, and we'll credit you, of course, or even we like to say, you know, it's on loan to the digital museum, or even, you know, a lot of people physically send us stuff, which we'll scan and photograph as well. I mean, I had a retired pilot who sent us, well, we got these amazing models, which was great, but I also, this pilot never got off an aircraft that he didn't take every piece of silverware in his 40 year career off of. So I had like boxes of soap from a certain airline or boxes of toilet paper, that might have been a little much. I've had amazing contributions. You know, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, Tom Harris, Seth Miller have all been great contributors because they have amazing, interesting collections and they're probably bigger buyers and sourcers than, than I am. And even we've had a couple of ex-airline executives, which is really fascinating. Some senior-level airline executives for major U.S. carriers who are the same kind of airline nerds who've been collecting since they were kids. One guy sent, 5,000 timetables and route maps. And he said, you know, I'm under orders to get rid of this, but I don't want it thrown away. I want it held because I would like it to get it back maybe. But right now I have to get rid of it just because I've got too much in my house. So that has really helped the collection uh, as well as a lot of photos. Chris, thank
0: you so much for joining us today. This has been a fascinating kind of walk down aviation history. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want people to know about the archive?
2: Well, thanks, man. You know, there's another thing that's just really cool about it that, again, you don't see everywhere is I've kind of been obsessed with tracing first flights and trying to break a Guinness World Record that probably doesn't even exist anyway. But that's to be on the first inaugurals of new routes, new airlines, new aircraft. So it's like on the first flight of the A380 or in revenue service in the 787 and the A220 and the you know in the A350 and or the la- very last commercial flight of the DC10 or if you ever wanted to be on the Sofia 747SP or the only flying DC8 the NASA lab I mean that stuff is all on there or you know the very first flight of what it was like on that first flight of Avello or early first flight of JetBlue to the West Coast so it's like a lot of interesting first flights last flights industry events deliveries Going into network operations control, going into literally execu- the offices that not just the training, which is cool, but people's offices, the headquarters. You want to see what airline executive offices look like, or the I don't know what's the Delta commissary look like. It's actually kind of interesting. So a lot of that kind of behind the scenes stuff is really interesting. You know, I think one of my favorite flights, the very last, you know, the MD eighty where I was the only passenger flying one of them to the desert. And so it's like, what is the very last flight of an airplane that's going to be? turned into beer cans by the end of the day. So a lot of that stuff is, I find is the stuff, you know, and a lot of scrap yards, stuff you just don't see maybe in as many places. And so, you know, I think that would be great. And, you know, for you to see And if you follow us on social media, we are on, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? X Twitter. You can X us at the archive and Facebook and my face and LinkedIn and all that. So we exist and try to produce a lot of content. And, you know, again, it's been a a blast, you know, being here. And so, uh, you know, please guys, everybody's, you know, welcome aboard. We won't lose your luggage.
0: Thanks so much. We've been
2: talking with Chris
0: Sloan, who is an aviation journalist and the founder and curator of the archive.net. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, dude. Welcome back. Jason, I know that you have done some traveling with Chris, as well as I have, and and kind of contributed indirectly to the archive. I
1: mean, you've played around with the new site. What kind of stands out in your mind? Just the absolute wide range of everything Chris has is quite remarkable. Anytime you see anything interesting, or you're flying a weird airline, just send a picture of whatever you're doing to Chris, and he will – archive it and it will be on the website forever for everyone to see because just the number of defunct airlines that he's flown that no longer exist, I think is what's most interesting to me because sometimes it's hard to find information or pictures about airlines that are no longer with us. And Chris seems to be the authority on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the – just kind of starting at the beginning of the collection and working your way forward chronologically is a lot of fun. Yeah. Things like I flew Song a lot as a kid with my parents. That was Delta's airline within an airline in the early 2000s. I have no pictures of that or anything. That was before camera phones were a thing. But Chris might have the world's most comprehensive collection of Song photos, except for maybe the airline guys, because I think they worked with Song for a while, too.
0: So... This was most unexpected, and the headline out of the Sydney Morning Herald is, I mean, stark, but it's a good headline. It caught my eye. It caught your eye. Qantas IT blunder leaves corpses in coffins on the
1: tarmac. Wow. What? That headline catches the eye. So Qantas, which is no stranger recently to bad headlines to the point where – CEO kind of ran away and said, nope, I'm done. Or maybe they they chased him off. I'm not sure which happened exactly there. But Qantas was apparently transitioning its freight infrastructure to the cloud. And it did not go well. They apparently have had 10 days of just nothing really happening with its freight system. So stuff is just piled up everywhere at its major hubs. And it's apparently one of the few freight forwarders at some of the major Australian airports to the point where produce was left to rot, even though it was supposed to be expedited since it was air freight. Unfortunately, caskets were apparently not able to be timely processed to where they needed to go. Except there's one interesting bit here where apparently the band Kiss was supposed to play at the AFL grand final and they were able to find the band's gear. So good not to piss off like a couple tens of thousands of fans waiting to see a band where they wouldn't have to go on stage and say, sorry, we can't play Qantas lost our gear. So that at least was averted, but yeah, not great because apparently Sydney Morning Herald says Qantas controls 25% a full quarter of Australia's inbound air freight. So that's, that's a lot of freight to go wrong for over a week.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of incredible the amount of goods that have piled up and – it really makes you think about how everything really
1: needs to go right all the time, especially for a country like Australia. It's not like yeah. you can plop a cargo container on a train and have it on the rails to Australia. That's not going to work too well. So air freight is critically important to Australia. And to have it go offline for ten days is that's going to cost Qantas a lot. And it, I don't know, maybe it come out of Alan Joyce's balloon payment that they're trying to claw back.
0: <laughs> maybe. The interesting thing to me is that it's a question of being able to find the stuff. Air tags, put them in everything. Yeah, there you go. They're saying that everything's still arriving, but when it gets there, they can't tell you where it is. And so the freight forwarders haven't been able to send it on its way. I mean, which is just crazy to me. Like,
1: wouldn't you be able to just put it somewhere and say, okay, this is where it is? I don't know. But if it's anything like seaports where, there could be tens of thousands of shipping containers, and no one knows where anything is if the system goes down. I guess it's a bit like that, but you're dealing with such a lower quantity when you're looking at air freight. So I don't know. A lot of questions to be answered. So if your shipment of whatever coming in and out of Australia is delayed, you probably know why now. There you go. So
0: this was big news near the end of last week. It was first reported as Spirit Aerosystems CEO, Tom Gentile, abruptly resigned. But in excellent fashion, I think as we've come to know, a reporter that we lean on on a regular basis, Dominic Gates at the Seattle Times, pulled no punches. Struggling with defects, Boeing supplier Spirit Aerosystems fires CEO. So, that was his headline there. Spirit Aerosystems, of course, is the company that manufactures, among other things, all of the 737 fuselages. and They're also the company that has been dealing with a number of manufacturing defects, including having to drill multiple holes into the fuselages. This is the when we talked about the snowmen a few episodes ago. So, all of that piling on, They said it's time for a new CEO. And so now the former Boeing senior vice president and former deputy secretary of defense, Pat Shanahan, will take over while they search for a permanent CEO. So,
1: Jason, your application is in? No, no. Normally (laughs) I'd say, yeah, a CEO position at an aerospace company. But no, I don't want anything to do with Spirit Aerosystems. I don't know who would at this point we've discussed this in the past, how they just keep screwing up everything there is to screw up with the 737 and 787. It's good to see accountability that the leader of the company was exited probably a little too late at this point because the damage is well in excess done. But it is super interesting that a former Boeing top executive would be pulled in. It just shows you how close Spirit and Boeing are. It's a relationship that one can't survive without the other but one is really holding back the other from being successful. So it will remain to be seen how well Shanahan can pull Spirit back from the brink because it it just has not been a good situation there.
0: Yeah. So hopefully this is a shipwriting moment over at Spirito Systems and and things improve. Or Boeing just says, screw it and buys them outright. I mean, they – in not – the distant past said, no, we're not going to do that. But who knows at this point? I mean, whether or not know. that's something that we don't know. That's something that could be on their plate or not. So recently, the FAA reauthorized Mexico's safety rating as category one, which means that Mexican airlines can now launch routes back into the USA and vice versa. And so Aero Mexico will launch 17 new routes to the US mostly as part of its joint venture with Delta. So that's wasting no
1: time. And that's a lot of routes. That's exciting. Yeah. So the code share is obviously very important, but there are a lot of new routes being introduced that I'm sure they've been waiting for a very long time to be able to announce and actually put into the world because there's been really a lack of capacity between the U.S. and Mexico since this whole thing started. But I'm sure a lot of people will be excited to see these routes. I cannot find the list right now, but it's exciting for those who want to fly to Mexico. But I think there are some new cities involved, like Detroit, I believe, is getting a route to Cancun, was it? So we've got Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Detroit, Los Angeles,
0: McAllen, Texas, New York, Salt Lake City, and Washington,
1: D.C. Nice. I'm trying to so, pull that list up, but the Aeromexico site is not cooperating with me. Maybe they were hacked by that other Mexican startup airline that I think also launched this website this week. Oh, the reincarnation of Mexicana? Yeah. I think they actually have flights for sale now, which Ooh. I couldn't get the website to work, which I don't know, not yeah. that surprising. Airlines are difficult, but Yeah. Interesting times in Mexican aviation for sure. Very interesting
0: times. It's also interesting times for Russian aviation because Aeroflot has settled with another lessor, this time paying off SMBC
1: aviation for the planes that it previously stole. Well, remember this was an insurance settlement. Once again, this time it's for $710 million for jets previously leased to Russian state-owned airline Aeroflot. So Aeroflot's not really paying anything, I don't think. This is all coming from an insurance settlement. In this case, it's related to 16 aircraft and their engines. So an interesting look at actually what the value of 16 unidentified aircraft and their engines are worth because apparently it's $710 million. All right then. Yeah. SMBC also had aircraft at least out to S7, Ural, Norwind, and Nordstar before terminating those all in 2022. But yeah, that's a pretty penny to have coming to you from an insurance payment, almost three quarters of a billion dollars. That's something to sneeze at, but still, there's a, a lot left to be paid out. Yeah. So, I mean, good for them, but
0: I mean, I certainly would have rather had the aircraft back because then you could, you know, Lease them out to They're somebody never else. Again. Coming back. They're never coming back. They're in a field somewhere after being landed with no fuel. Preparations continue to remove the Ural Airlines A320 from the field. They're and discussing they, taking the seats out the to lighten the weight. They're building fences around the aircraft. They're waiting for the ground to freeze. This is going to be one of those things where we get weekly updates on how they're doing all of these things, and then one night, they're just going to chop the thing up and call it a day.
1: They're going to do it, and we're going to get 144p sideways video off someone's camera phone (laughs) from 2009 posted to like Russian social media. It's going to be awful, but we're all going to watch it. There you go.
0: All right. What do you say we close the show with an interesting list of aircraft that Skipple put out? These aircraft are no longer welcome to fly
1: to Amsterdam. And it's quite Ever. the long list. Ever. Ever. So you will no longer see a list of 87 aircraft type, or really it's less than 87 because the list repeats itself quite a bit. But there are 87 types of aircraft that Schiphol has outright or will outright ban from commercial passenger or freight operation ever to come back into the main Amsterdam hub here. This will come into effect in, I think, March 31st of next year. The Dutch are really, really, really making sure that they do everything they can to make sure KLM is not a successful airline. But in this regard, we have a list of 87 aircraft codes, at least, that will no longer be welcome. Some of them are – interesting choices. Most of them you would never have to worry about because I'm pretty sure- Some you would need a time machine to prevent from flying. So if you are an airline that operates a Boeing 707 Combi, you are no longer welcome back in Amsterdam. If you (laughs) operate an Aleutian IL-76, which I don't know, might be possible these days, you cannot- That one makes sense. That one makes sense. If you operate an Antonov AN-30, you are no longer welcome back in Ashton. But there are actually some interesting head scratchers here, like the 767 freighter is no longer allowed in, but the 767 passenger aircraft is not on the list. So presumably still welcome, but that problem sort of well, itself the, out. No, the
0: but no the 767-200 freighter. Yes. If I said 300, I meant 200. No, no. You just said 767 freighter. So I Okay. Yeah. The 200. The 200
1: 200 freighter is no longer welcome, which I think affects uh, DHL. Possibly, yeah. That wouldn't be terribly surprising. But there are very few aircraft on this list that you would ever presumably see again. I mean, there's a slight chance you might see like a 747-200 or 300 in a very odd circumstance. But there are some – Oddities here. Like they went out of their way to include the Antonov AN 225. Like that's just rubbing salt in the wound. (laughs) It was like, no one went through this list and was like, have any of these aircraft ever flown here
0: in the last 10 years? Do any of these aircraft continue to fly
1: anywhere in the world? Nobody went through this list. No. It's kind of comical to just look through because if you own a Grumman Goose, you're gonna have to fly elsewhere. <laughs> you have to fly it somewhere else, or uh, if you are the Sands Corporation with the only known, I think, L ten eleven in service, other than like the rocket launching thing. Sorry, you can't go to Amsterdam, but bummer. The, yeah, it's just a weird list. Kind of just a formality here saying, hey, look at all these aircraft we banned because they're too noisy. Well, none of these are really- None a, of those fly there anymore. None of these are things. So you don't really have to worry about them. But if you have a time machine and you happen to fly back a, a DC-10 and then tend to operate in passenger service, well, you're going to have to do it elsewhere. A DC-10 Amsterdam is time nothing. machine. That would be cool. A DC-10 time machine. I mean, on this list, the DC-10 is probably the least interesting aircraft you could bring back. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably go with something like I don't know. The AN-26 would be fun. 747-SP uh, specifically noted. Ooh. I don't know if any of those are in existence. The only ones that I think are government operated, which is excluded from this list. So you might see the 747 on this list. Do not fret. Air Force One can still go to Amsterdam. There you go.
0: All right. How about we call it an episode? Episode okay. 236, Thank you all so very much for listening. We very much appreciate it. And if you would be so kind as to leave a rating or a review, we'd appreciate that even more. You can do that wherever you find your podcasts and this podcast, whatever platform you listen to it on. Thank you so much for listening. I am Ian Patchnik here as always with
1: Chester Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.